This is a love story. It begins in the 1950s with a young black girl from a segregated Florida town called Yuli. Her name is Joanne, and she's a little different. Black girls in Yuli are typically raised to believe that when they grow up, they will work as domestics in white families' homes. It's what their mothers have done. Other work is scarce. But Joanne grows up watching her mother, who left school at 15, spend decades pursuing her GED. And Joanne's dad, whose formal study ended after fifth grade, reads to her from popular mechanics rather than Hans Christian Andersen. Their first love, Joanne realizes, is education. It becomes her first love, too. She leaves Yulee for Florida A&M. Then she heads to Atlanta University for a master's degree. That's where she meets him. And of all auspicious places, the library. His name is Elmer, and he's a bit of a maverick, too. Radical where she's reserved, outspoken where she's more quietly observant. But together, it seems, they're unstoppable. They have so much in common, their brilliance, their way of being a little different no matter where they are, and of course, their shared cultural heritage. Joanne and Elmer marry in a newly desegregated Yuli, and after earning more degrees, they move here to Baltimore, where Dr. Elmer P. Martin becomes a professor at Morgan State, and Joanne Mitchell Martin earns a doctorate at nearby Howard University. It's a classic story, really. Girl meets boy, girl and boy become doctors, Girl and boy fall in love with an embattled East Baltimore community and start making wax figures of black historical leaders to bolster within that community a sense of self-love. Girl and boy buy a firehouse on East North Avenue and begin little by little to fill it with wax people until they have a bona fide museum, the first of its kind in the country. They decide to call it the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. And to this day, whenever you walk through it, you feel meticulously, painstakingly, loved. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown and this is Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, Episode 3, Be Real Black in Wags for Me. I'm Dr. Joanne Martin, President, founder, along with my late husband, Dr. Elmer Martin, of the National Great Blacks in Wax Museum. We sat with Dr. Joanne Martin on the second floor of the National Great Blacks in Wax Museum. At our backs, stately, business-clad wax figures of Baltimore luminaries like entrepreneur Osborne Payne, former Morgan State Choir Director Nathan Carter, and politician Clarence DuBurns. At our right, an exhibit called And a Little Child Shall Lead Them, Black Youth in the Struggle, depicted scenes of children singing and working and suffering for liberation. There are hooded Klansmen in this exhibit, their hands on two black children's shoulders. My husband Elmer's approach to teaching social work was to start with history. And he kind of helped me to, to embrace history and the importance of it and, and really a love for it. This museum is less about his point of view of history, or I guess maybe as much about that, as about the needs of the African American community and the needs of black children. As uh, a faculty member at Morgan, and his uh, college-age students were beginning to complain and saying that learning black history and culture would be of no value. It wouldn't get you the American dream or the middle-class dream or the corporate dream. Um, they were talking about um, just how, what, how having an afro could mean that you didn't get the job or having your hair braided and all of those things. So they saw this focus on culture as a deterrent. And this was very, very disconcerting to, uh, to my Ungawa black power husband, uh, Elmer Martin. Black power, black power. 
Around the same time, Dr. Martin says, her husband began coaching Little League in the city, which led to another troubling exchange with an even younger black child. The Little League team had just had their pictures taken. And one of the kids came to him crying and demanding and angry that he make the photographer take the picture over. And Elmer said he just automatically reached out, took the picture, um, said, son, it's a great picture of you. Why should they take, it, take the picture over? And the kid said, because they got me too black in this picture. I don't want to be as black as they got me in this picture. The Martins were increasingly unsettled by younger generation's self-image. And, you know, we were the say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, black and beautiful generation. And to have the college students saying career-wise it's possible to be too black. And then, the, um, then the co and then this kid saying physically it's possible to be too black. And we thought we had gotten past all of that. that with our slogans and marching and uh, afros and all of those outward symbols and our dashikis, that we had gotten past that. And so... Elma said um, after the discussion with his uh, students and thinking about the experience that he'd had that weekend with the little boy, he said he sat in his um, office um, just in between classes saying, how did we get back to this point and how did we get back to this point so quickly? And he said after much deliberation, he said that we failed to institutionalize our history, to build institutions designed solely for the purpose of preserving our history and culture, and failing that, every generation was going to have to start from scratch. The idea for a wax museum came shortly thereafter, but the Martins didn't have much money or any idea how wax figures were made or where to acquire them. After making several phone calls, they managed to find a wax museum builder and wax figure maker right here in Baltimore, Robert Dorfman. So Elmer called him, and we went in to see him, and he said, my uh, wife and I um, want to build uh, the first Black History Wax Museum in the nation. And we don't know a whole lot of, about the industry or anything. What can you tell us? And so he gave him as much information as he chose to give at that point. And Rob said, well, you know, I build wax museums all over the, um, the country. So why don't you and your wife let me build it and own it and you run it for us. And Elma said, well, you know, you have all the resources, we have none. And so you could very well, if we said, no, we don't want to do that, there isn't a whole lot we could do. You have our idea, you have the resources and, and you could take it and run with it. But I know that whereas you have the resources, I don't think you have the passion for our history and what we would want to do and be able to do. And Rob said, you're right. And whereas he very much could have taken our idea, he backed off, he helped us. He, he said, I'll, what I'll do is to, um, is to give you some wax figures and I'll put you on a payment plan. Dorfman made the Martins four figures, Mary McLeod Bethune, Frederick Douglass, John Brown, and Nat Turner. Dr. Martin says they'd load the four into our Pontiac and set them up at schools, churches, and malls. Sometimes when they unloaded the figures at home, money that people had tucked into their clothes after viewing would fall out. That money, along with their salaries as professors, helped them purchase two more figures and eventually a dedicated space on Saratoga Street in 1983. We would go in, we'd get paid for me at my, my job at Coppin and Elmer at Morgan, and we'd go take take him a little bit of money and um, uh, one Elmer would go in and say, well, Rob, I guess the day we paid for an eyeball. 
because we were giving him so little money, but but that was the only way that we could um, could have functioned, and and he supported us in that effort. The Martins operated on a steep learning curve, teaching themselves not just museum operations, but also the technical details of wax figure making, an obscure practice if ever there were one. The older figures were a combination of beeswax and vinyl, whereas there was a, a, a likeness the likeness was often there, the vibrancy wasn't. The materials that you use that define the vibrancy. The teeth are made of what is known as dental acrylic, which is the same thing that false teeth are made from. The eyebrows and um, any facial hair or whatever, that sometimes when people have hair on their hands, all of that is punched in with almost like a, a knitting needle, one strand at a time. If you're an artist and you um, sculpt a statue or bust or something, when they look at it, that's all you. From the top to the, to the bottom, that's you as the artist. But that wax figure, you've got someone who's sculpted the face, someone else who's uh, crafted the hands. You have a torso maker. You have someone who, uh, the person who makes the eyes is not the person who sculpts. And so you're talking about a creative team of people that bring together this, this thing we call a wax figure. By 1988, the couple had acquired an old, unused firehouse from the city at 1601 East North Avenue. Gradually, the Martins populated that space with more and more exhibits. You'll hear about those later. They also traveled the world together as scholars, all the while gleaning inspiration for their Great Blacks and Wax Museum. It was in one of those far-flung locations, Egypt, along the Nile River, where Dr. Elmer Martin passed away in 2001. Since then, Dr. Joanne Martin has carried out their vision for a safe and edifying space where black children and adults can see their own often hidden history reflected through the display of carefully crafted lifelike figures and interactive exhibits. But it's been an uphill battle. Museum maintenance is expensive. Dr. Martin has more moral support than financial backing. East Baltimore, particularly Oliver, the community where the museum resides, is a neighborhood struggling to revitalize itself after decades of blight. But Dr. Martin says her late husband's vision and passion and his love for that community continue to guide her. She wants to make good on all the promises they made to each other. It is that fighting spirit for both of us that has allowed me to be here in the midst of the neglect by public officials and all of those things that we've had to fight against um, and continue to have to fight against. That is what's given me the, um, the courage, the guts to stay here and do what I do and, and carry on the fight every day. Up next, we'll take you inside the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum, where you'll hear from people whose lives have been transformed by its exhibits. You're listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Welcome to the colored section. Welcome to the Negro League. Sign your name on a blacklist and know this. It's American history. Full disclosure, 
I chose the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum as one of our episode locations because it made such a lasting impression on me as a kid. I visited a handful of times on school field trips and always found the place a bit eerie. As uplifting and inspiring as it is, it's also haunting. This isn't just some place you go to marvel at how much the figures resemble the celebrities they depict. It's a total immersion in our collective past. It's meant to sober as much as celebrate. Let's listen. Oh yeah, the first thing you see when you walk into the lobby is the um, Hannibal, the greatest military leader uh, in history. He's like, a, there's like a wax museum, a wax figure rather of him on an elephant. Dwayne Saunders Jr is a senior at Morgan State. After you leave the lobby where you see uh, Hannibal uh, and lots of, and like Bessie Coleman, the first uh, black female pilot, um, you go into this area where you see, you know, different exhibits, but then you see like a mimic, like a ship on the left side and you go in there and you get to see what, get a little brief idea what it was like for the Middle Passage. Don't worry, we have a new load of slaves coming aboard right now. Where people were force-fed, uh, people were thrown overboard, people were branded, uh, and how if one was sick, even those who may be healthy that were chained to them, they were all just tossed off the boat. Just lots of crazy stuff. And that when Baltimore, Baltimore was actually, I think they mentioned, was a port where they where they said they wouldn't allow slaves. They wouldn't allow slaves coming because you can smell the the stench over five miles away and can you imagine like that just that's just really crazy to you know really imagine like something that bad and then even sharks will follow behind the ship and then the one thing that really stands out to me what they said that there's sharks that still follow that triangle that path to this day because of the amount of ships that traveled uh between here the caribbean and africa it's just really mind-blowing i learned something every time i visited there Dwayne works as a peer mentor for Morgan's Orientation Program, which has, for the past six years, taken all of its incoming first-year students, to the tune of over 800 new students each summer, to the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum as part of their four-day orientation process. Dr. Tiffany Nfume, director of the Office of Student Success and Retention, implemented this annual practice after polling incoming students who said they'd chosen to come to Morgan because it's historically black and because they wanted a uniquely black college experience. The National Great Blacks and Wax Museum has become a vital first step in providing them that. We asked Dr. Nfume which areas of the museum are most emotionally affecting for her. The first memory that I can call upon is the slave ship. Um, it, it's tight, it feels close, it feels uncomfortable. Um, and just thinking about what it would be like to travel from a, one continent to another in the bow of a ship stacked on top of each other, chained like sardines with feces and smells. And it's, you know, especially when you have a great storyteller kind of painting a picture for you with words plus what you see in front of you. Um, and then when you leave the slave ship at the Great Blacks and Wax, it says, always remember. When I make my 50 cents, Lord, I carry it home to Rose. Come on here, old mule. That's, that's my and first memory, and then the second would be the lynching exhibit. Also, 
It's something about going downstairs with Blacks wax and Wax. When you have to walk down steps, you know it's going to be like you're going deeper. It's almost kind of symbolic. Uh, you also have to go down into the lynching exhibit, and there's so many real-life photos of lynchings and just names and photos and names and photos. We have had people especially cry when they go down into the lynching section, uh, which is a very dramatic area, and then the stories that surround the lynchings uh, is even more dramatic. I've had young people that have gotten sick because uh, they didn't know what we've come through. Mr. George Bunton has long served as a docent at the museum. He tells stories at various exhibits, especially those related to civil rights. No, actually, I just enjoy taking groups throughout the entire museum. I've been fortunate in my life to have lived a lot of, of that black history, uh, to be able to see it and, and view it, uh, and now I can share it with others. Uh, so we go right from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois on into Ben Hooks, Clarence Mitchell, or Perrin Mitchell, uh, and uh, Barack Obama, right on around through the black church, which is a vital part of our history as a people in this country. Uh, we t even took over in the West uh, and came right on around to uh, Ben Hooks and Rosa Parks, who I actually had a chance to meet. Uh, so. To me, it's a great, I get a great deal of pleasure, especially when I'm doing young people. I've always felt that much of the problems, the social problems that we have in the black community come about because people don't know their histories. Uh, for whatever reason, good or bad, it doesn't make a difference, black parents have tried to shield their children from the history of what they went through. That hiding of history may account for some of the attitudes the doctors Martin encountered in their students back in the 1980s. When children are encouraged not to contemplate the harsh realities of the past, they begin to devalue those realities. Many exhibits at the museum include audio clips that help students find any historical or personal context they may be missing. Begin by looking at the left side of this exhibit. A white man crouches in front of an old-fashioned metal stove, pushing in someone's legs and feet. Now look to the right, on the other side of the wall. Behind the stove, a woman helps a man to climb into a narrow space inside the wall. The Underground Railroad wasn't really underground, and it wasn't an actual railroad. It was a secret network of people helping slaves to escape. And he remembers his mother picking him up and caressing him and saying, don't cry. And she gave him a cake in the shape of a heart. And he never saw his mother again. She went back to her farm. She died two months later. So he knew he was born 1819, but he didn't know what day. Nobody knew. So he said, I must be born on Valentine's Day. Because he remember her giving him that cake in the shape of a heart. I remember going there when I was even younger than that and, um, and seeing uh, Henry Box Brown, um, and who has a remarkable story, but he still stood out to me because his hand moved uh, as, you, as you walked past him. William Redmond grew up in East Baltimore. 
his home shared a block with the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. He's been working there, in some capacity or another, since he was 10 years old. When he isn't busy on duty as a systems engineer for Naval Air Systems Command, he continues to work for the museum. He's been there for 20 years now. Being involved there at 10 years old, it made me more self-aware. It made me more conscious of who I, who I was, where I came from. It made me not only understand that, but understand the potential that I had within me. I dared to become an engineer. Um, so now I'm working for the Department of Defense as an engineer. I think that it's, it's kind of hard to say what, the, what I would have been without the museum, but I think the museum definitely played a role in that. Seeing a Granville T. Woods or Lewis Latimer, who were, who were electrical engineers and pioneers in their field, and saying that, okay, you know, I really can become an engineer. When you enter through the doors into the heart of it, the first thing you see is a big bundle of cotton and then a wax figure having a, a, a metal mask. And he's like lifted off the ground like by an inch and a half. And, the, and then that's when a tour guide gets into like, this is one of the many tortures that slaves had to suffer. And then you also see one with a, like a little strap with bells on there. So that way, if they were a runaway, they would strap them in this and they show that that was a way to mentally beat down the slaves because they, because when the slaves will see that person, they'll know that that's going to be them if they were to try what they did. And then on the left, you will see the middle passage exhibit, and you will go down in there, and you will learn more about that. And then slightly forward and off to the left, you'll see like the history of the Egyptians and um, what was accomplished, the leaders, and all that other good stuff like that. And then you go further into there, you see a lot of the. CEOs, uh, black CEOs, companies of like um, the gentleman for, who created FUBU, and lots of other stuff. And you go even deeper and you see one of Barack Obama, which is pretty cool. And then when you get out of that, you make your way around, you see lots of other stuff like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Bill Pickett, um, and then you see other inventors and innovators around the edge, and it ends all off with Martin Luther King. But then in the further back portion downstairs is the lynching exhibit on the very top. Um, it shows you, it's like it's like a whole different group of stuff on the upstairs portion. As I mentioned, it's a lot. But it's a lot to see, and it's nothing that you just quickly go through and get out. You definitely take your time at each exhibit to understand and know that person or persons uh, and just go forward from there. It may sound like the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum is already jam-packed with history, but Dr. Martin is planning to expand in a big way. Late last year, deconstruction began on what will eventually be a $75 million museum expansion. Next up, we'll tell you what that means for a community that's long overdue for this kind of regrowth. You're listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. After sitting with Dr. Joanne Martin inside the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum for over an hour, listening to her talk about all the obstacles she and her husband Elmer faced to create this space for me and for people like me, it occurred to me how difficult it must be to be a visionary. Elmer and I thought that we would be these wonderful Martins, and we turned out to be the Crazy Martins. That was the name that we, that we um, got, um, the handle that we were given. 
The Doctors Martin created something that it had not occurred to anyone else to build, something as creative and idealistic and surreal as it sounds like their relationship must have been. Along the way, they had to siphon away their savings for a down payment on a home to start the museum, and at one point, they pawned Dr. Joanne's wedding ring to keep the place afloat. They did it as a selfless act of love for a community they worried over constantly. But it wasn't always easy to get others, especially in city government, to see it that way. The question is still asked by far too many public officials in this city that is um, predominantly African-American with so many African-American leaders, is why should we support a museum located where Great Blacks and Wags is located? And I think that the unrest answered that question, but I still don't know that a connection has been made between all of that and, and the fact that we are here and should be supported and what we do is important. I don't know that um, that, that message has been communicated, embraced, the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum is in a neighborhood called Oliver. It rests on a stretch of North Avenue east of where last April's unrest occurred. The intersection of Penn and North, which became the site of protests, is in West Baltimore, the side of the city which, despite having its own tough challenges, still receives more resources than the east side. Consider this. Of the 16,000-plus vacant homes in Baltimore City, at least 13% are on the east side. In Middle East, the neighborhood adjacent to Oliver. The total population of residents decreased by a staggering 45% between 1990 and 2000. Like most of Baltimore City, the east side has pockets of remarkable growth, like the area surrounding Johns Hopkins University and hospital, and pockets of severe blight. The area immediately surrounding the museum falls somewhere in between. Dr. Martin says her husband's plan all along was to change that, the museum was meant to be only the beginning. His idea was what people call today an arts and entertainment district. Elma called it a cultural hub. And the anchor institution would be the Great Blacks and Wax and our 120,000 square foot museum. But on the 1500 block would be the Uhuru Village Place. And that would be, um, it would have studio space and uh, for artists and booth space and uh, vendor space and uh, exhibition space. And so those people who have come from New York and who are saying, after Great Blacks and Wax, what is there to see? Then we would be saying, go across the street to the 1500 block and support those artists. And we would say to the artists, we've got space that you can afford um, where you can, can live, live and, and work space. And on the, um, the 1700 block, the Gompers building, Elmer's vision was for um, an entertainment complex so that you would have theater and music and performances and um, teaching kids to dance and tell stories and um, or to um, what they call maker spaces now so um, manufacturing and um, all kinds of things that could lead to um, to this entertainment complex and support that description may sound familiar to Baltimore listeners who've heard of Station North, the arts district on the west side of North Avenue. 
The city designated that area, which encompasses three neighborhoods, as an arts and entertainment district in 2002, and it plans to pour millions of dollars into the area over the next 20 years. Dr. Martin believes there's great resistance to placing similar investment in the east side. Though she isn't entirely without support and encouragement from city government, funding the expansion plans the city has approved is something she's doing relatively independently. No millions in city subsidies are forthcoming. That these buses that we have that line up, that represent tourism, to see those buses and not understand that those buses mean jobs and economic opportunity and revitalization of a, of a community. The blinders of um, far too many officials is just very, very disconcerting to me. George Bunton, museum docent and former tour guide, agrees. Dr. Martin and her husband, when they chose that site, they chose it because it was in the heart of the community. I think the city fathers would prefer that it would be downtown where the tourists are. Uh, but I think it's helping to revitalize that community. This is a love story. And as James Baldwin famously wrote, love doesn't begin and end the way we seem to think it does. Love is a battle. Love is a war. Love is a growing up. At over 30 years old, the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum is continuing to grow up and out in unexpected ways. It all began with love. And in order for the museum's next phase to be successful, the city of Baltimore will need to find new and better ways to match and exceed that love. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Wincote Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the MacArthur Foundation. Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos and video of the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum and the people you just heard talking about it, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. We'll return in two weeks with the story of the Oblate Sisters of Providence and St. Francis Academy, the oldest continuously operating school for Black Catholic children in the United States. <laughs>